0: on Joshua twelve through seventeen. You can find and subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. All the links are in the show notes. If questions come up during the course of your reading, please feel free to ask them by going to bit.ly ask-O-T. That's bi tl slash capital A, lowercase S-K, hyphen, capital O capital T. As we get to Joshua 12, the style of the book turns from being full of action and battles to being more about the logistics of apportioning the land already conquered. This sort of political turn actually becomes more challenging for the children of Israel, and it may take a minute to see why, but once you see it, it becomes obvious. It's way easier to follow God in the wilderness and at war, when you need God's intervention for survival, when you're you're making your way through a place where there is no water and nothing to eat, and you're dependent upon God for provision of manna and quail and clean water, when you need to invade a land that is teeming with giants and... You're always outclassed militarily, and you need to trust God. Like When you need God's intervention for survival, you can follow God. But following God in the yucky mess of politics, when we think we can do okay on our own, that's a lot harder. And the sort of political interactions we see in Joshua, along with the political interactions we see in our day and age... They reveal how people resolve the inherent tensions of existing with others. Political conversations are so fraught with controversy because they reveal what we find important and what others find important. And we can often then identify differences in opinions. Uh, We then tend to reduce people to how they differ with us, whether it's because they have an R after their name or a D after their name or because they have a, a pet issue that we disagree with. And when we find differences of opinion with those we love, particularly when those differences strike at something deeply important, we can struggle to keep loving them. And there are two paths to take in these sorts of interactions. Number one, we can prioritize the relationship over political opinions. Acknowledging the relationship will have the stress of deep disagreement. The other option, second, is we can prioritize the political opinion over the relationship, brokenhearted that we've lost a friendship, but uh, holding our ground on something that is deeply important to us. And we've seen throughout the ages Christians take both of those paths this is the difficult thing of being part of god's people is holding intention purity of belief and welcome for the stranger especially when the stranger is someone who is close to us we're going to see some of that tension being held in these chapters of joshua the tension between welcome and purity so as we get into Joshua twelve, we've left the narrative and we've begun meeting out the conquered land of Canaan. We've begun we've begun to apportion this out to the different tribes, and um, Joshua twelve uh, it, it relays a number of the kings that were defeated first by Moses and then by Joshua. And while some of this reads by like a genealogy, there are gems here. For example. We see King Og mentioned once again as one of the remnants of the Rephaim. Uh, we see this a couple times in in our reading this week. and, and the Rephaim are thought to possibly be the one of the, the giants who were on the earth in that day, at least according to legend. Uh, so we've seen King Og come up a couple times. Uh, we'll see giants as we go on. There's some giants that Caleb wants to fight later in our reading. And then, of course, there's the the um, confrontation between David and Goliath later on in 1 Samuel. Uh, now, we also, in this chunk, in this text, we catch a glimpse of how Canaan might have been organized. If the list of 31 kings in this chapter is historically accurate, we can imagine the Canaanites in several smaller city-states. They weren't a unified nation. They were many you know, competing states here. It's not like the U.S., where uh, you've got uh, Indiana and Illinois uh, both working together. Um, no, this is several different city-states, different nations, so these kings uh, were often more like chieftains to some degree. Now additionally, we we know from the David story that Jerusalem wasn't captured until David became king, uh, so when we look at this list in Joshua 12, there's some skepticism I think that we need to come to it with, because there's some disagreement between it and other parts of the Bible. But... As we're going to look at um, a couple times in our reading this week, the biblical writers were not fools. They weren't idiots. They uh, were deeply familiar with the text that they were writing. And so they would have caught some of these contradictions. And the fact that they left them in says that they weren't too worried about them. Uh we can see some of this as we go to Joshua 13, um, that despite the long list of kings dispatched by Joshua, much of the land still remains to be taken hold of. So uh, like like we've already covered, the writers and editors of the biblical text, they notice this tension between Joshua 12, where all these kings were defeated, and Joshua 13, where suddenly, like, hey, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, Throughout the Hebrew Bible, this is the tension that the Israelites need to hold and the tension that that I alluded to uh, before we got into the text. On the one hand, the Hebrews then and Christians now were called to be God's treasured possession, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. On the other hand, they and we are blessed so that they can bless the whole world. For them to dedicate themselves, for us to dedicate ourselves, both to national purity, for us it would be purity of the body of Christ, and blessing the world, that's a hard balance to hold. It's a really hard lift. Purity, after all, involves separation, whereas blessing involves welcome. It involves contact at some level. If Joshua merely relayed the story of the invasion of Canaan, well, then Israel could focus strictly on purity and separation instead of blessing and welcome. But Joshua doesn't simply relay this story. There is this strange interaction with the Gibeonites that we saw last week. There's some collegiality that happens um, to the point that Israel doesn't drive off all of the Canaanites. There is a tension held, even in this book of conquest, between purity and separation on the one hand, And blessing and welcome on the other. Living a life of following God isn't so easy as just withdrawing from culture or just embracing culture. It involves paradox, uh, doing both of these. Uh, Following Christ is not an either-or proposition. It's it's more of a both-and proposition. So we get to Joshua 14 and we encounter Caleb once again. We've seen Caleb before. He was one of the spies, uh, one of the 12 spies that went and looked on the promised land. He was the one who, along with Joshua, brought back a positive report. Uh, There were two spies, you'll remember in numbers, that brought back a positive report. And the other 10 were like, hey, there's giants there. And we quavered in fear. Uh, and and so both Caleb and Joshua, they, they have a relationship from 35, 38 years ago when they scouted the Promised Land. And we see Caleb's deep faith in this story in Joshua 14. Caleb approaches Joshua and says, Hey, um, you remember when we scouted that out together. You remember how you know all of Israel was afraid, but we brought back a good report. Now, I'm going to ask you a favor. Can you do me a favor? Joshua's like, all right, name it. And, and Caleb says, I want to fight the giants. And I want that to be the land that I inherit. Caleb yearns to take possession of the part of the land that belonged to some of the giants they saw because it isn't enough for Caleb to just have sort of a theoretical faith that God's going to deal with the giants. Caleb wants to see how God deals with the giants with his own eyes, wants to be the sword that God uses to deal with the giants. He needs to experience God's deliverance with his own eyes. He needs to put his life on the line for his faith. That, for Caleb, seems to be what makes his faith real. And I wonder, for us today, how do we respond to the giants that are in our path What does it mean to have faith that God will deal with them? Are we willing to, like Caleb, go out of our way to say, God, these giants are living where you would have me live and we need you to deal with them. Is our faith a theoretical one or is it one that sustains us when the rubber meets the road? Up and deals with the giants in the land of Hebron, we get this huge 60 some odd verse chapter in Joshua 15. And this massive chapter segues into dealing with the tribe of Judah. Now, later in Israel's history, Judah's going to get its own kingdom. Uh, We'll see it uh, in the split of kingdoms that happens after the reign of Solomon uh, as we get into, you know, later on in 1 Kings. It's something to anticipate that the, the kingdoms are going to split. There will be 10 tribes that go up to Israel in the north and two tribes that hang out in Judah in the south and judah is going to follow the kings in the davidic line the davidic monarchy and the author or the compiler of this chapter in joshua might have had this future reality in mind when he when 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 this compiler allocates so much land to the tribe of judah these borders are just massive i would encourage you to get out a map uh, one of the maps that may be in the back of your Bible, or you can Google a map um, to, to try and see what the, the borders might look like. And and then to, to follow what's described here with Judah. Now, we, we also have this strange story about Caleb once again and his daughter, Aksa. So, Caleb, he's he's gone. We, we've covered this already, a man of deep faith. And he wants... For someone with just as deep of faith, someone with a fighting spirit, to be the one who he'll give his daughter to in marriage. So he proposes, "Hey, um, go take this town, uh, and then I'll give it to you as part of the 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 dowry price for my daughter." And in fact, it's Caleb's brother who goes and does this. Perhaps faith runs in the family, and. Um, so Caleb's brother and Caleb's daughter end up getting married, which to us, by modern standards seems a little bit odd. Uh, but for them this this was all okay, I believe. Uh, so Oxa, his daughter, comes in and makes a request of Caleb. And, and there's a couple different ways of understanding this request. She says, "Hey, the land's dry. Uh, I, I need something like, I need water, basically. And you can interpret this both literally or metaphorically. Uh, I've linked two articles in the show notes that deal with both these, these interpretations. The the Talmudic or the Midrashic, the, the ancient Juda, uh, Judaistic commentators... They took a more metaphorical approach, and they said, well Axa is is not happy with this marriage that she has uh, the the guy she married knows his Torah super well um, but uh, you know he's he's not great you know otherwise it's he, kind of boring uh, and so Axa is, is is going and asking Caleb like, hey, do me a solid." Help me find a way to, to get my new husband to, like, be a warrior sort of thing. So that was, like, the ancient Judaistic understanding of this. Uh, we can also look at, geographically, the area that Aksa and her new husband settled in. It was dry. Like, like geographically, it was a desert. Um, and, and nearby, there was a, a piece of neighboring land that belonged to Caleb that had these springs in it. And so when AXA comes and requests like, hey, can, can I get some, some water on my property? Caleb says, sure. Yeah, here's this neighboring land. I'll, I'll give it to you as, as, as an additional gift. And either of these interpretations, like there's a certain amount of sense both of them make. Um, and, and we're going to come across this same story almost verbatim when we get into Judges, I believe the first chapter, Um, because uh, Ox's husband, and we'll deal with him later, he's one of the first judges that Israel has. Um, So again, we'll get into that that a little bit more later. Uh, In in our final two chapters, uh, we deal with Manasseh and Ephraim. These are the, the two sons of Joseph. And you may remember that Joseph got a double portion. Uh, there were 12 sons of, of Jacob, who is otherwise called Israel. These are the 12 tribes. Uh, and and it, it, the, the land is separated into 12 sectors. But Levi, you may remember, one of the sons of, of Judah, does not get land because Levi has received the priesthood. So that means that there are 11 sons who get land but we're separating out into 12. Well Joseph is split into two and given, you know, one lot for Manasseh, one lot for Ephraim. So these these two tribes are featured in Joshua's Joshua 16 and 17. Joshua 16 is a super short chapter. Um, The the northern kingdom of Israel, after the kingdom's divide, would sometimes be called Ephraim. And so perhaps the author or editor of Joshua wanted to do a little bit of description of the northern kingdom along with the southern kingdom, assuming that this author or editor was writing or editing the book after the split of the kingdoms, uh, which would be a few hundred years after the events of the book of Joshua take place. Um, Ephraim was the largest tribe within the borders of the northern kingdom. And tracing these borders is, is also an interesting exercise. So when, when the land is apportioned out to Ephraim and Manasseh, they ask for more. They're, they're like, hey, we're super numerous. we got a lot of people. This land can't handle us. There's not enough room for us. So Joshua comes to them with a the solution and says, hey, you can take this land. Um, Drive out the Canaanites, it's yours. But they are a little bit leery of this because the Canaanites in the land have iron chariots. And this was technology that the Israelites did not have, which made the Canaanites uh, really, really powerful in the plains. Uh, Particularly uh, reading this story on the heels of Caleb's desire to take on giants. The refusal to take on the Iron Chariots feels sort of like wanting all the credit without doing any of the work. Uh, There's a, there's a, not a trick, but a practice that an old pastor friend of mine often would use, and that's when somebody comes with a critique or with an area of improvement for the church or for an organization, it's not enough just to level the critique. We have to be solutions-minded, and so uh, the person leveling the critique, uh, my, my former pastor, would often ask them, hey, would you help me solve this? And if they're not willing to help you solve it, then the critique may not matter very much. That's a little bit what it feels like with the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, that if they really valued more land, if they were truly too numerous for the land that they had been given, then they would be numerous enough to take on more land from the Canaanites. We are called, in our political discourse, along with any discourse around the church, to be not just problems oriented, but also solutions oriented. How is it that we can better serve Christ's body? How is it that we can hold the tension of purity and blessing? That's all for Joshua 12 through 17. Next week, we're going to read Joshua 18 through 23. In, in this chunk, we're almost going to finish the book of Joshua, but we are going to see how Joshua finishes apportioning the land to the tribes. We'll see a conflict between the Transjordan tribes, those who settled on the east side of the Jordan River, and the others who inhabit the promised land on the western side of the Jordan River. May God bless you in your reading of Scripture.